Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Fantastic. Hey, it's good to see you this morning. Kids, you guys are able to be dismissed and head out, and I uh, hope you have a great time in G2 this morning. Uh, we're so thankful you guys worship with us in church. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 24. How many of you saw Matthew coming this morning? Anybody? Not so much. We've been in a uh, series in the book of Revelation for, uh, for a few months now, and we will continue to be in Revelation, and we will get there today, hopefully. Uh, but before we do, we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit and look at something that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, but as we kind of, before we get there, just to recap, in the book of Revelation to this point, we have seen Jesus write letters to his churches in the region of Asia Minor. We've seen him uh, reveal himself as a conquering lion from the tribe of Judah who came to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. But he did so not as a lion. John said, when I saw him, he was actually a lamb. He was a lamb that looked as if it had been slain. He, Jesus gave his life. He conquered death and he won our salvation through sacrifice, not through uh, political victory or strength of, uh, of power and might, but he did it through sacrifice of himself. Uh, and then in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus open the seals of judgment that were prepared uh, for this world, that as God brings the earth to an end, as he brings human history to an end in this earth, in this age, that there are seals in a, on a scroll that are open, and the seals represent God's judgments to the world. And so we've seen Jesus be the only one in the universe who had the ability to open those seals. He alone was capable of doing, doing that. But as we learned last week and the week before, in the church age and during the tribulation, the people of God are supernaturally protected by Jesus from his wrath. We will experience turmoil, we'll experience pain, there will be different things that come, but God supernaturally knows how to protect his people from his ultimate wrath on the earth during the tribulation period. So before we move ahead in the book of Revelation... I want to look back at the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus tells us some things in this Gospel in a conversation that he had with his disciples about what the day of his coming as king would be like. And so what we discussed in the seal judgments and what we'll see in the trumpet and the bowl judgments that are coming are also described by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 24, we're going to go back and look at this today. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you up front today. There is a lot of scripture that we're going to look at. A lot. <laughs> and so, uh, so just be prepared to, uh, to read and to listen. Uh, and we're going to go through a lot of things. But hopefully, once we get to the end, it's all going to come together and help us understand a bigger picture of what God is doing. So if you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus says. 
Matthew records this conversation. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings around the temple. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the big question, right? Jesus, what's it going to be like when you come back? What should we expect? What will the end of the age be like? What are we going to look for when you come as king? So that's the question. And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. We kind of talked about that with the seal judgments, didn't we? That there are going to be wars, there are going to be things that happen all over the globe. That just is part of earth and part of life on earth. Verse 7, he says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. Again, the famines, the things that we talked about with the seal judgments, those, have, those are happening. Those things take place. Then in verse 9, he says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me, the martyrdom of the church. Jesus says that's part of these judgments that come, the martyrdom. We've seen that play out. He says in verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and we haven't gotten there in the book of Revelation yet, but we will. It says, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let uh, no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let, one, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In those days, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be shortened. The elect are Christians, believers in Christ. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. It's a way of Jesus just saying, listen, you're not going to have to wonder if I'm coming back. You will see it. It will be evident. As, as lightning in the east is evident in the west and visible in the west, it will be evident. Remember what the angels told Jesus' disciples when he ascended back to heaven in the first chapter of Acts? And they're standing, mouths dropped open because Jesus just floated off into the sky and they're looking up into the sky and then angels show up and go, what are you guys staring at? The same one who left will come back the same way he left. Jesus is going, you're not going to have to wonder if somebody says, oh, there's a guy out in the desert or there's a guy over here in this house. That's the Messiah. Because you're not going to have to wonder about that because you will see me return the same way that I left. It will be evident. It will be visible. So then in verse 26, he says, so if anyone tells you, no, we already read that part. Uh, here we go. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We looked at that in the sealed judgments last week. We'll see that play out again in the trumpet judgments this week. It says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's how the sealed judgments ended. We'll see that play out again with the trumpet judgments today. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as, it twigs get, as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the days at the coming of the Son of Man." For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, at that time, who wasn't caught off guard by the flood? We've had flood this week, right? I had to go back and reread and make sure that God had really promised that he was not going to flood the earth again. It's true. He's not going to do that. It just felt like it this week, okay? But who was not caught off guard by the floodwaters coming? Noah, right? Everyone else was caught off guard. They were just going about their normal life, doing things as normal. Noah, though, is prepared. He knows the day of God's judgment is coming. He's prepared for it. He sees it coming ahead of time. He prepares for it. Then he goes on and says uh, in verse 40, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. In other words, there will be those who are with God and there will be those who are not with God. When the end comes... There will be those who are separated from God and there will be those who are with him. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. And so as Jesus talks about these things and as he shows us uh, a glimpse of what he's about, we start to see and understand that he rolls out all these things. And we've seen them play out already in the seal judgments that Jesus opened in the, in the early chapters of Revelation. We're going to see more of these things start to play out as we get into the trumpet judgments. But he tells us not to be caught off guard. He says, you don't know exactly when it's coming, but there will be signs. There will be evidences of things that will be taking place that you should be able to identify as followers of Christ who have the word of God, who's been given to us in advance to see and understand there are some things taking place that should clue me in to the fact that the end is near. It's getting close. It's getting close. Jesus is not the only one who describes this. Paul also discussed this fact that while the world would be caught off guard at the return of Jesus to set up his kingdom, the people of God shouldn't be surprised as we see world events playing out as Jesus describes in Matthew and Revelation. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. It says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, Christians, are not in darkness so, this day should, uh, so that this day should surprise you as a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. 
We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each up just as in fact you're doing. And so Paul says, listen, there is going to be a time when people are saying, oh, the world's getting better, peace and safety, and we're working toward global security and peace, and all these things are taking place, and everyone's just going about life in their normal way of doing things, and everything seems fine. And he goes, but in the end, it's going to just come on them. They're not going to be prepared for it because they don't know what to look for. That's them. Then he makes the contrast, and he says, but you, brothers and sisters, should not be caught off guard by these things. You should see these things that are taking place and you should know what God is doing to bring about his end. So before we move into Revelation this morning, there are a few things that I believe are important for me to attempt to shine light on my personal views uh, on reading this book and interpreting end time events. And so if you're taking notes, this would be the first thing that you can kind of fill in some blanks, write some things down, or if you like to use our app, uh, just again, fill in the blanks there. But here's the first thing. When we read the book of Revelation, we don't read it like a narrative. The book of Revelation is more like a puzzle with lots of pieces that are scattered through the book, which when you put them together, make up one image. So when we read the Gospels, when we read Acts, we read it linearly, we read it as a narrative, and we go, this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and there's this story arch to it, right? And we see the story of Jesus from his birth to his ministry and teachings, to his miracles, to his death, and then ultimately his resurrection. And we read that as a story, as a narrative. It's got an arch to it. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. When we read the book of Revelation, we don't necessarily read it as, apoc as apocalyptic literature as if it has that same story arch to it. What you're going to find in the book of Revelation is that there are things that John will take a look at, he'll see, he'll tell us about, and then he'll look over here and he'll see something else and he'll tell us about, and then he'll look back over here and he'll see something else and he'll tell us about. And we have to figure out how to kind of weave those pieces together. We have to be able to take the puzzle pieces and say this and this go together, and this piece and this piece go together, and these things over here, they seem to go together. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we need to learn to read it not as if it's moving in a lateral way or a linear way, but whether or not it has common themes and how they fit together. For instance, when we see the sealed judgments, we get to the end of the seven seals, and John says there's the day of the Lord that appears, that comes. Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. At the end of the seals, Jesus comes to reign. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's hail, there's earthquake. It's the end. Then he's going to back up and he's going to look again. He's going to tell us about another set of judgments, these trumpet judgments that we'll look at today. And when we get to the end of the trumpet judgments, the day of the Lord has, a come, has come, has appeared. There's lightning, there's hail, there's an earthquake, there's devastation. It's the end. The day of the Lord has come. Then later in the book, John is going to back up again and he's going to tell us more about some judgments, the bold judgments of God. And when the final bowl is emptied, guess what's there? The day of the Lord has appeared. It's the end. It's lightning and hail and earthquakes and devastation and Jesus has returned. Now, are there three days of the Lord in the book of Revelation? Are there three returns of Jesus to come to the earth and set up his kingdom? And leave and let things go crazy 
pour out more judgments and then come back again? No. There's one day of the Lord. John sees the events of history and the events of the future play out in a vision that God gives to him. And as he writes them down, he tells us, he goes, there are these judgments that happen. And these things happen. At the end of these things, the end comes. But in the middle of that, if you look through another window, so to speak, here's another set of judgments. And they're playing out in this time period. And these judgments, when the end of these judgments happen, the day of the Lord is there. Jesus is back. He's come to rule and to reign. And then there's these other set of judgments that happen. And it's not necessarily a linear event. A lot of us have been kind of told, hey, the book of Revelation happens and, and I'm in this camp. I've been with you my whole life. I'm, I'm relearning some things and I'm developing some things in my own theology, my own personal understanding of, of how you read apocalyptic literature and how you read the book of Revelation specifically. But a lot of this goes into play where you're going, it's uh, a, uh, a period of time at the end where there's 21 things that play out linearly. And at the end of those 21 judgments of God, then Jesus comes back. I don't think that's exactly how John meant it to be read. I don't think that's exactly how we should approach the book. We should see it more as John sees a portion of things here with the judgments of God. And at the end, they're done. And then there's other judgments that are taking place. And in the middle of all of this, at the end, it's the end. It's when Jesus comes back. And there's these other judgments that are happening. And here's how we really should kind of think about this. The next blank on your outline. As we get closer to the end of time, things progressively get worse until God's judgments are finalized and Jesus returns to prevail over Satan and sin. And that's how I think we should kind of think about this, is that as time goes on in our world, and as God pours out his judgments against the world, we talked in the sealed judgments about things that I believe have been taking place historically for a period of time. Wars and famine and plague and disease and these kinds of things that have been playing out. And now we're going to see more in the middle of all of that, that as the end draws closer, the judgments of God become more and more severe. And so when we think about this, many of God's judgments have been playing out this way. And yet as we get to the end of each set of judgments, I believe we see things which have yet to happen, which will take place during a period of great tribulation. So the second thing that I need to share my personal view on before we look at the trumpet judgments is just this. The question that I get asked the most and have been for weeks now, when we finish the message and I'm standing out in the lobby and hanging out with people, is this. So when's the rapture going to happen? When are we out of here? When is that event going to take place? And that's the big one, right? We're all wondering that. And so uh, I'm just going to tell you this. Uh, I understand this may be where I lose some of you, but here's my view. And so I'm going sh to share this with you and then we'll talk. Number two, a rapture of the church does not seem to be evidenced prior to the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom. And so when you think about this, and we're going to see today, and my, my goal today is if you disagree with my view, that we still can be friends, we can still like each other, and that's okay. Um, here's what I'm really hoping for. I'm hoping my view is wrong. <laughs> uh, if you are somebody who believes like I did growing up, and if my dad's watching this message today, I'm going to get an earful from him, um, because he basically trained me in how to read Revelation my entire life until just in the last five or ten years. But, uh, but it was always for me. There's a rapture of the church that enters a seven-year period of time where a tribulation will take place. The Antichrist will show up on the scene. Israel will sign a document that brings in a, a, a PD of trees for a uh, trees. 
I'm going to start that over. You guys ready? A peace treaty for seven years. And in the middle of that, he's going to break that peace treaty. And then the last seven years are going to be a period, or the last three and a half years are going to be a period of great tribulation, right? But the church is not going to be here. We're safe. We don't have to worry about that because we're going to be raptured out. As I think you look at scripture, I don't see that being a biblical way of reading the revelation account and a time, an account of the end times. And so I'll explain my views a little bit, um, but I want to tell you that if I'm wrong, and I hope I am, um, that I'm all for you guys if you believe that way, okay? Um, But God, throughout Scripture, it seems to me that he allows his people to go through all sorts of difficulty while supernaturally protecting them. If you go back and you look at the account in Exodus, all of the judgments and the plagues against Exodus, where were the people of Egypt or the people of Israel? They were just to the east in Goshen, Goshen was unaffected at all by the plagues that God poured out. He supernaturally protected his people. When he sends a flood to destroy the whole earth and everyone is destroyed, where's Noah? Noah's safe in the ark, right? When you see these things play out with Lot in the Old Testament, when there's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's gonna judge the wickedness of the the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, where's Lot? Angels go and they supernaturally pull him and his family. They go, you've gotta get out of here. We're gonna protect you from this destruction, from this devastation. There's a protection over God's people. And I believe that's gonna be how things play out. The same way we talked about the divine wrath being poured out in the last days, last week when we looked at the 144,000, the 144,000 that are sealed, and that may not necessarily be a literal 144,000 people. It may just seem to represent all of God's people. But that when we think about that, that God supernaturally protects his people from his divine wrath. Now that doesn't mean that we won't have been impacted by the things that happen in this world. We're gonna read today and we're gonna see that a third of the grass and the trees are burned up, that a third of the waters are destroyed, that a third of the ocean is destroyed. If that happens and it's literally going to happen, then we're going to be impacted by that. But God promises that his wrath is against those who are away from him, apart from him, not meant for us. We'll be supernaturally, I believe, protected by God from some of these things. So, My goal today isn't to to prove you wrong or try to convince you even to my side of the view or the argument. Uh, I just want to show you what I believe Jesus is saying and then offer my opinion on Jesus' return. And since I'm the one that has the microphone, you have to listen. And so uh, you can tell me after church your views, okay? Uh, So let's turn our attention to focus on Revelation 8 and 9, and we'll see if we can get through this today. Uh, In Revelation 8, 2... John tells us that seven angels who stand before God, possibly archangels, we don't know that. There is in Jewish literature, historically, seven archangels that are named and mentioned, but we don't know for sure. But these angels are given seven trumpets. And so in Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 6, here's what John says. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down on the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, a third of, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters turned bitter, and when many people died from the waters, that had become bitter. 
The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. And a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now, as we look at this, these first four judgments that we see take place are judgments against nature. And so you see this unfold, but they also correspond with the plague judgments that God poured out on Egypt. And so for people who read the Bible and go, man, you know what? When I read the Old Testament, God just did unbelievable supernatural things. And then I read the New Testament, and yeah, there's supernatural things around Jesus and his healing and the apostles and what they did in healing people. But like the crazy stuff of the Old Testament seems like it disappears. Where does that stuff go? Why doesn't God operate that way now? What's going on with that? Well, number one, you don't want God to operate that way all the time, okay? It is scary, when you go back and you read the Exodus account, we read it and go, oh yeah, locusts and flies and frogs and you know, hail coming out of the sky. No, no, no. This decimated Egypt. Decimated it. And so when we see this now, we're going to get to a period of time in human history that we may very well be part of where God is going to once again act on a global scale with this kind of intensity that rivals the Old Testament. And so we're going to see these things play out. And so the first four judgments correspond with the plague judgments that God used against Egypt as he rescued his people from slavery to establish them in a new kingdom. Now think about that. Why did God send all these plagues against Egypt? Well, one, to introduce himself to the Egyptians and to offer them a chance to know who he is and his power. But two, to bring his people out of slavery to give them a new kingdom. I'm going to give you a new land, a new place to establish a kingdom that's under my authority and my dominion. So that's what happened in Egypt. What's God going to do at the end of the age as Christ returns? He's going to pull his church, sending plagues against the world, sending destruction against the world, supernaturally protecting his church to pull us out to bring us to himself to begin a new kingdom, his kingdom on earth. So God starts to do the same things that he did in the Old Testament to bring his, the Israelite people to a new kingdom. Now in the New Testament era, in our era, in this age, he's going to do these same types of things to bring his church out and establish his new kingdom on earth. And so this is what's going to take place as we read this. If you're following along and want to take notes again, just write this. Jesus is sovereign to act as judge and he judges in fairness. He judges in fairness. Sin against a holy God requires a righteous response. Our sin against God's holiness requires his response. And he is righteous in the way he responds. We're going to see later in the book of Revelation that angels proclaim to Jesus as he pours out his wrath on the earth, you are right to do so. It is your right as the sovereign ruler of the earth, but you're also right in the things you do. Now, this is a barrier to some people. If you're not a follower of Christ today, this becomes a barrier to you where you go, but isn't God supposed to be good and loving and kind and merciful? So this, this wrathful God that pours out justice against the world, I don't know how to rectify that God with what I've been told about God. And the answer is simply, yes, God is loving and kind and merciful, but that's only one side of his personality. 
He is also holy and righteous and just. And because he is those things, he must bring his justice to the world. And so we see God begin to act in this way, and he acts in fairness. These are things that we deserve, that the earth deserves because of sin. God is not doing something that is against his righteous ways. So the first trumpet that we see play out, we're going to see how these mirror the exodus. So here's the, the first thing. If you're, again, taking notes, write this down. The first trumpet lines up with the seventh plague of Egypt, the hail that comes upon the earth. But in Revelation, God adds fire and blood to the mix. He says there's not just hail that comes into play. There's fire and blood mixed in with it. Now, whether or not that's literal, I don't know, but things are, those things are often associated with judgment. And I don't know how this will specifically play out, but I believe this is an actual catastrophe against the earth, that God will send hail, fire, and blood against the earth, and that that will be the first of the trumpet judgments. The second and the third trumpets line up with the first plague of Egypt but they include a burning mountain and a blazing star. So if you remember the first plague of Egypt, what did Moses do? He put his staff in the water of Egypt and it turned to blood. The Nile River turned to blood. John says, when I saw this happen, something like, not necessarily a huge mountain, but something like a huge mountain was thrown into the sea. So again, I'm not sure how all this plays out, but the effects are devastating. Notice what he says. A third of the waters are turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the waters die. A third of the ships are destroyed. And yet, it still shows God's mercy in these moments because the devastation is not total, not at this point. As God brings judgment to the earth, he does not do so immediately in totality. He's patient. He brings judgment and he gives people a chance to see his mighty acts and to turn from their wickedness to, to turn to him. And so, uh, in this first part of the judgment, if the burning mountain impacted the salt waters thrown into the sea, the next thing he says that there was a blazing star that impacts the fresh water sources on the earth. He says they're thrown into the rivers. And this star was called wormwood. We go, why is it given this name wormwood? Well, wormwood was a shrub that produced a bitter dark green oil. Uh, and they used it medicinally. It was used to kill intestinal worms. And so it was known uh, to, to make things bitter. It was actually became known and, and associated with bitterness and sorrow. And typically, wormwood wouldn't kill someone. It might make you sick. It was doing work inside your body the same way that maybe uh, the toxins that we use to treat cancer can make you sick. But they're designed to kill what's in your body, not to kill you. Wormwood was kind of the same way. It was used to, to treat these intestinal worms, but it would make you sick, but it wouldn't kill you. But in this judgment, John says, but people died from drinking the water. So this is rough. This is a difficult plague on humanity. People were being poisoned by the water supply. And then the fourth trumpet lines up with the ninth plague of Egypt. It talks about darkness coming on the land. If you remember in Egypt, they went through a prolonged period of just darkness. While Goshen had light and the Israelites experienced the light, Egypt was thrown into utter darkness. And so darkness often serves as a symbol of divine judgment in Scripture. So this may mean that we have a third less daylight than we're accustomed to. It may also mean that we have a third less light at night if a third of the moon is taken out. Well, I don't necessarily know if that means that we're going to lose a third of the sun, like God's just going to chop off a third of the sun and it's going to be gone. I think the earth doesn't work if we don't have the sun. Uh, but maybe it just simply means that we'll have a third less daylight 
in a third less light at night. That things will be darker on the earth and that will be a sign of God's judgment. Uh, and so as we get to this point, after these first few uh, judgments, the first four, John takes this brief intermission. And if you noticed as we read, uh, when we get uh, into this section, and I believe it's in uh, verse 13, John says, And I watched and I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa, 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 that's not stop. That's, oh my gosh, this is about to get bad. That's that kind of woe. Uh, he says, Whoa, whoa, whoa to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So the next things that are coming, this being, this, this eagle, maybe angelic eagle that cries out in a loud voice, says the next three things that are coming, if you thought those first four things were bad, these next three things are bad. So let's look. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. And the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. And during those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and they, in their tails, they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. That means destroyer. The first woe is past. The two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. And the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like that of snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. They Stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their immorality, or their thefts. Now, there's no way that I can describe these things to you that are coming in the future with pinpoint accuracy of any kind. So we have to let Scripture speak in and of itself in some of these things. But I want to try to make sense of a couple of things here. The fifth trumpet and the first woe line up with the eighth plague of Egypt. But rather than locusts, we see a demonic attack. And God says there was an angel, rather more a demon, that was sent to the earth, that had the key to the abyss. 
And as it opened the abyss, these locust-like creatures came out of the abyss. And again, you couldn't write a science fiction movie that had creatures like this in it and put it up to Hollywood and Hollywood go, no, not, even that's a little bit crazy, guys. We got to back this one back a little bit. And yet in God's judgment that he'll send, these, these beings will come against humanity. But they act in opposition to what normal locusts do. Did you notice that? Normally when locusts are released on the earth and what we saw in the Exodus account, that when the locusts are released, what do they do? They eat everything. Everything of vegetation, the grass, gone. The leaves, gone. Everything that can grow, gone. The wheat, the grain. The locusts eat it all. But in this judgment, did you notice that these locust-like beings, these creatures, these demonic beings that are released from the abyss, they're told don't harm the grass or the trees or the leaves or anything like that. What were they given permission to do? You go after humanity. But only those who do not have the seal of God. Again, God's supernatural protection of his people when he pours out his wrath against humanity. And he says that for five months, these beings are given permission to just completely go after humankind and to torture them. And people will wish to die, and yet they will not. So, if you're taking notes again, Jesus protects his church from his divine wrath. But the people who live outside of a relationship with God will have to face the retribution of Jesus for not following him. Ultimately, we're protected. But that doesn't mean that we won't face, again, impact from this. Can you imagine how much of a target Christians will become if everyone who's a Christian is being spared from this kind of persecution and suffering while the rest of the world is going through this type of trial. I would imagine that there will be severe backlash against Christians from those who don't follow Christ. That martyrs of the Christian faith will take place during this period of time simply because we're spared from God's judgment. But regardless of what happens on earth, here's where we have hope. While we're protected from God's wrath, even if the wrath of men come against us, we have the hope and the promise and the security of knowing that whatever mankind does to us on this earth, we still will be with God in heaven when we die. That's our ultimate hope. It's not escape from judgment. It's that we'll be with God forever when we die. And so we hold on to that. So for those who are not followers of Jesus this judgment is incredibly difficult. John says they would wish to die and not be able to do so. God desires for people to live and repent instead of being killed. If you can see it, even in this judgment from God, it's a judgment of mercy. He sends this plague against humanity. He says, but I'm not gonna let you die from it. The ultimate goal is that you'll recognize the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the power of God, that you'll turn from your wickedness and you'll follow him and be spared and be protected. And I believe that there will be some during this period of time who will turn, but not many. We'll see more of that play out in the next trumpet. If you want some additional reading to do to kind of see how John...
using some of this text. Maybe the locust judgments make you think of something from Joel chapter 1 and 2, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. You can go back this week and just look and see what does Joel have to say about a literal invasion of a locust army against Israel and this locust army that John describes. There's some pretty impressive similarities there uh, that help play out. Let's move on to the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet and the second woe bring death to a third of mankind. So in the previous judgment, God had told these demons, hey, you can harm humanity, but you can't kill them. At this judgment, God sends four angels from, that have been caught, uh, captured. There's not necessarily angels. Again, I think we need to see these as demons. Uh, they're created beings, but angels are not uh, bound and kept. These are, they are uh, demons that are released. They're given demonic horses to ride. They've been kept bound just for this time, and they're given power to take life from the earth using a plague of fire, smoke, and sulfur. Right? And, and John says, and I saw it, and this, this trial that came again upon humanity, a third of humanity died. That they have the ability to kill and destroy a third of mankind. And you would think in the middle of all of this, as we listen, that people would go, hang on a second, stuff's going on here, and Christians are telling us this is the judgment of God and the wrath of God, and we need to turn from our sin and our wickedness to come to God. We should do that. Look, the Christians are not being persecuted. The Christians are not being put through these judgments. They're being spared from this. Maybe we should listen to them. And you would think that there would be a mass turning to God in this period of time. But look at what John says in verse 20 and 21. He says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of their work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot hear or see or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So even as the judgment of God increases in potency, the people of the earth refuse to repent. Their hearts are hardened like Pharaoh's was in the account of the Exodus. And I believe that some people will turn to Christ, but the majority will not. And to their everlasting doom, they will fall away from Christ. Um, one of the commentaries that I'm reading by George Eldon Ladd, he said this, Yet the wrath of God is not merely judicial. It also embodies a merciful purpose. It's designed to drive men to their knees by harsh experiences while the time of decision remains before it's too late. That's the purpose. That's the intent. And yet John says, it won't happen. Humanity's heart will be hardened. And so I want us to close by getting to this next judgment. And you have to skip to chapter 11 to get to the final judgment, which is actually just a proclamation that the end has come and Jesus has returned. The seventh angel, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has come, and the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshiped God. And they said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. That always represents God's presence with his people. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Again, the same thing that happened at the end of the seal judgments happens at the end of the trumpet judgments. This is just John's way of saying, and the end had come, and Jesus comes to rule and to reign. And so as we get to this, at the beginning of the message, I told you 
that I don't necessarily believe there's a rapture of the church prior to the end of days. I want to briefly show you in scripture how I line things up to make that statement. There are three passages that I want to look at quickly as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, 50, uh, verses 51 through 53, Paul writes and says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, immortality, or with, and the mortal with immortality. So Paul says, at the last trumpet, these are the things that happen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul again writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, I tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul says, if there's a rapture to meet Jesus in the air, it happens at the end. It happens at the last trumpet. When there's a call of the archangel and a trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise, and then we'll meet him in the air. And then I believe that we'll probably meet Christ in the air, and we'll come right back to the earth where he will set up his kingdom. And so that's just, again, my personal belief. But it seems to me that it's always at the last trumpet that ushers in Christ's eternal rule that we're taken to be with Christ. And if that's the case, then we need to know how to live our lives during a period of time where God brings his judgment to the world should we be here for that. So the question becomes this, whether we live long enough to see these days or not, one day we will stand before Jesus and give account of our life. And every single person in this room has to ask themselves the question, am I ready to face Jesus? And when I do, have I made him Lord of my life and have I bowed to him as savior of all? Or have I chosen to go my own way, do things my way and believe I'm just gonna be okay outside of God's family? If you're unsure what would happen to you if you faced Jesus, we want you to know today that the answer is to repent of your sins to turn from the things that separate you from God and to give your life wholeheartedly to him as Savior, as Lord, and to let him have complete control and charge of your life. For believers, let's do as Paul said in Thessalonians. Let's encourage one another. We can see the direction that our world is going. Yet instead of losing heart and being discouraged, let's be encouraged. Let's be encouraged. Our God is in control and he knows how to rescue us from the day of trial. He is a good God. He is merciful and kind and loving, but he is just and he is righteous. And we put our lives in his hands every day. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.